Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello. Welcome to another episode of History Hack. I, of course, am exceptionally, exceptionally, incredibly excited Why? Because today we are doing classics. And as you all very much know, I am a closet classicist. Shit, everybody knows that. Anyway, we've got with us today, Christy Constantacopoulou, who is a professor at classics and ancient history at, guess where, Birkbeck University College London, where I went. And she's also a published author. She's published books like Aegean Interactions, Delos and Its Networks in the Third Century. Christy, welcome Thank you very much. I'm really happy to be here and to be talking about subjects that I really, really like talking about. Um, So because when when we do teaching where I am, we teach kind of the big subjects, the big subjects of classics or Greek history. And I don't want to burden students with, you know, talking with what I'm really interested in, which is Delos and um, the history of ancient Delos, this small island in the Aegean in the classical antiquity. So it's really great to be able to talk about this, not in a very formal setting, because obviously I've given papers and stuff, but they have to be very, you know, polished and, um, you know, very academic with all the references. And it's, it's not fun. So this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun because you we don't take academics very well on this podcast. Well, we do. We yeah. love our academics, but we'd rather be in a more relaxed setting. And um, well, unfortunately, Christy didn't actually teach me. But ladies and gentlemen, I can tell you that my best friend um, had Christy. I think she was all four years. I think Christy taught, taught Linda. Linda, you probably correct me on this uh, if you're listening. Um, maybe three years. I can't remember. And she'd always tell me how an awesome time she had in your classroom. And I was always jealous because I started drifting to modern history. But I, I said, you know, Alina went to the dark side and, you know, we are the fun aspect of the department, but we do lose students to the dark side and 20th century history, which is the most horrific period of history in terms of mankind, whereas, you know, ancient Greece, yes, we have slaves, there are famines, there's war, but, you know, it's also great fun. And also because that's the other thing, I am in Athens right now, I relocated because of COVID. I thought, you know, I can spend my time looking at the computer screen while in Manchester, where I live, where it's raining and pretty awful in the winter, or I can spend my time looking at a black screen in Athens, where it's sunshine outside right now and 19 to 20 degrees. So Athens won and it's, <laughs> it's wonderful. My mental health is really brilliant. So one great advantage of Greek history is that it's related to the Greek landscape and environment and you know I love Greek islands and Delos is a very small island so the Aegean Sea as one author said um, a classical author of late antiquity actually Elius Aristides he said you know the Aegean Sea is the most beautiful sea of all the seas because it has so many islands and I totally subscribe to that view it's just beautiful you 
you know, I go and do my research in the Aegean. I take ferry boats, go sail through the beautiful sea where the sun falls and, and, and creates beautiful reflections on the Aegean blue. And then you uh, get off on a beautiful island and, uh, you know, you eat the most amazing food, you drink the most amazing wine and ouzo. And did I mention there is sun, which we like in Manchester? And, you know, <laughs> that does make, you know... Greek history is just so much better. And, okay. you know, Delos, which is what I think we're going to talk about, was, was the center of the Aegean uh, world, conceptually, religiously, and politically. So in ancient Greek mythology, it was the birthplace of the twin gods, Apollo and Artemis. And there is a whole narrative related to that that <clears throat> highlights the importance of Delos. So as with a lot of Greek mythology, the story starts with Zeus impregnating uh, an innocent maiden. Leto. Isn't that normal though? Zeus impregnates yeah. so many so many women at this stage. It's, it's just, you know, it's 90% of Greek mythology is uh, Zeus sticking it somewhere where he shouldn't have and then, you know, the repercussions of that action. So Europe, you know, Europa on the bull, you know, it's just, and he also takes bizarre, um, what is he, he becomes a bull for Europa, he becomes a swine for, uh, what's in for Leda, it's really weird stuff in Greek mythology, but in the case of Leto, he's in human or divine form, Leto gets impregnated, of course, Hera, his, uh, Zeus's wife, is very, very angry at that particular issue, and doesn't allow Leto to give birth anywhere on the world. So all the, we have two narratives talking about this. The Homeric hymn to Apollo, dated roughly to 6th century BC, and Kalimachus hymn to Delos, dated roughly in the 3rd century BC. And they both recount the same event, how Leto is trying to find somewhere to give birth, and all the lands withdraw and do not allow her to give birth because they're afraid of uh, Hera's wrath. And as Leto is absolutely desperate and is trying to find a place to give birth, here comes Delos, which is not solid land. It's a wandering island and therefore sits outside the stable world that Hera controls and allows uh, Leto to give birth on, on, on its soil and therefore becomes the birthplace of Apollo and Artemis. And at that point, Kalima, who's a third century poet, tells us that, you know, um, uh, the island becomes now solid geography. So it was Adelos before, it means it wasn't shown, it wasn't appearing, and becomes Delos now, so stable, appearing, permanent. So there are all kinds of stuff you can do with this narrative, such as, you know, the move from chaotic geography, uh, the, the sorry, the solid geography that Hera controls that refuses Leto to give birth to the chaotic geography of the wandering island. But through the grace of the birth, now Delos becomes solid and the rest of the world collapses because it doesn't allow um, the birth of the gods. So you have many kind of uh, undercurrents there about insularity, stability, mythical narratives. And that's the background of Delos. So it's the birthplace of the two gods. And because of that, it becomes a huge cult center for the Greek world. They build a sanctuary there, don't they? So, yeah, they start the Greeks, when we can actually witness it archaeologically, start gathering there and, and therefore worshipping the gods in about, we would say, eighth, the 8th century BC, the beginning of the archaic period. And eventually they built a temple in the late 7th century, 
which is, I should say, one of the earliest temples, um, so earliest monumental structures to be built in such a sanctuary that is a regional or panhellenic sanctuary. So Delos has a temple about a generation or 30 years before Delphi or Olympia have a temple. Oh, wow. It's even earlier in terms of monumental construction. So the, they start building a temples, but it's not just temples, a huge sanctuary with treasuries eventually to uh, house the treasures of the gods. So all the presents that the Greeks bring to the gods and dedicate to the gods. And around this develops a very important uh, city-state and a very powerful city-state eventually, exactly because it controls the sanctuary. The classical period, so the 5th century BC, Athens controls most of the Aegean through its Athenian empire. Athens is a, the big kind of power in the, in the region. And during that period, Athens controls Delos and the sanctuary because it can. It's part of an imperialism, imperialistic plan. But the Delians managed to get rid of Athens, of Athenian control in 314 BCE. And that, so at the beginning of the Hellenistic period, and that marks what we call the Delian period of independence. And it really makes what was an already very important, a very big sanctuary um, into a massive sanctuary full of dedications where Hellenistic kings and queens, the Ptolemies in Egypt, the Antigonids, all of them come to Delos to dedicate gifts uh, to the gods, to build uh, monuments and sanctuaries and stores to show off their wealth and prestige and so on. So by 314, Delos really takes off and becomes super massive. And by the Roman period, it's also one of the biggest uh, uh, markets, including slave markets of the Eastern Mediterranean. So it's not just Panhellenic, this sanctuary yeah. and the temples. It becomes far <laughs> wider because, for example, people say that Delphi was just Panhellenic in itself. But this is, I, from what you're saying, for me, it's wider, it's bigger, it's more of a draw than Delphi. No, I wouldn't say because Delphi has the oracle and it, it is a huge draw. So, you know, when when you would ask the Greeks who are the which are the big Panhellenic sanctuaries, they probably would say Olympia and Delphi because also of the Olympic uh, Games and the, and the Pythian Games. But Delos is also truly Panhellenic in that it attracts visitors from all over the Aegean world. And eventually once the horizons of the Greek world get expanded as, you know, we move down from the classical to the Hellenistic period, then it starts attracting worshippers from all over the Mediterranean. And we can see that because we have the, we have the inscriptions that record those names. So we see them already from Massalia, a Greek colony in France, Marseille, to South Italy, where you have Greeks, but also to Egypt, now Kratis, the Middle East, the Syro-Palestinian coast, uh, of course, Asia Minor, the Black Sea, it's from all over the place. Is you know, as the Hellenistic period <laughs> happening, you start getting also non-Greeks. And in fact, Delos is the earliest uh, synagogue we have outside Judea in the whole of the Mediterranean. It also has Jews. It also has all kinds of ethnicities. It becomes a true mixing bowl. I don't like that expression, but, you know, if we are talking about mixing bowls and cosmopolitanism, then Delos is a place. And it does help, I think, and that's my other research, that it is an island, because, you know, traveling and 
navigation and so on takes place by sea in the Greek world um, and in the Mediterranean world. You can travel long distances by sea. You can't travel long distances by road, and at least until the Romans come and start building roads and whatnot. Um, so the fact that it's an island and it's a great port means that it becomes a massive market and it can attract people from all over the Mediterranean. Do we know how long it took for people, for example, from Athens to get there by sea? So depending on the winds, um, it's about how many miles? About 80 miles. So it would take about a day if the weather was good. If you start very early, it would take about two days if things um, became rough. Um but of course, that's the great, you know, advantage of the Aegean. It has so many islands that it uh, provides resting places for navigation. That's why navigation developed so early um, in the Aegean. So once you're sailing from Athens to Delos, you're sailing southeast. You can basically travel and stop at each island and 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 rest your crew or take provisions and finally reach uh, Delos. Nowadays, with a ferry from Piraeus, it takes about uh three to four hours so my other question is while we're talking about this there is a rumor that delos was it was barren and it just couldn't support the people that actually lived there but from what you're telling me that they had the sanctuary and the temple and people would come from egypt and in the middle east to me that doesn't sound right so this is this is interesting. So Delos is a very small island, and because it's an island, we can actually calculate its, um, you know, how big it is, how big the territory is. So the island itself is about a mile long and half a mile wide. So that makes it half a square mile in terms of, you know, c- carrying capacity. It's very very small. In the Hellenistic period, the estimates are that it had between six and ten thousand population. So it's massive. That's a lot. Obviously, it's a lot. Obviously, the island cannot uh, cannot produce the amount of food that you need to support this population. The island itself possibly cannot produce the amount of food to support a population of 50 or 100. It's so small. As with Cycladic Islands, it does look barren. It doesn't have fertile soil. You depend on very small fertile niches for cultivation. That's true for all uh, Cycladic islands or islands of the southern Aegean, Delos even more so because it's really, truly tiny. So obviously it depends on food being imported from elsewhere. And this is the, for me, the interesting thing. And one of the things that, you know, we as scholars haven't paid perhaps as much attention is how much food actually comes in. And hopefully we have, for us historians, we have the accounts um, on stone. So the Greeks have this thing called epigraphic habit uh, from roughly the 5th century down to the end of the classical, to the end of you know antiquity. They like to inscribe things on stone and then putting them on public display. And that is a great thing because it means those texts survive for us archaeologists and historians to read. If they had put them on wooden planks or, or, or paper or whatever, they wouldn't survive archaeologically. Stone survive archaeologically, we can read those texts. Delos produces thousands of inscriptions that survive and we can read them. And part of those inscriptions is the annual accounts that the the priests of the sanctuary produce every year, recording all the expenses 
and income related to the running of the sanctuary with prices, names, and everything. And that is an amazing source for financial history, for economic history, for political history. It's it's truly unique and makes Stilo such a wonderful place to study exactly because we have all those sources. So there we have, for example, how many pigs the sanctuary um, sacrifice, how many pigs it needs for sacrifices. And pig is a very important animal in Greek religion because it is used for sacrifices for purification. Delos, of course, is a sacred island, so no one is allowed <clears throat> to die or give birth on the island itself. And therefore, whenever that happens, because obviously you have accidents, people do die and women also perhaps suddenly give birth and they don't have the time to be moved to the neighboring island, which is, you know, 20 minutes across with a, a rowboat to give birth. So you need a constant supply of pigs to uh, purify the sanctuary if that takes place. You also have kind of monthly purifications and you also have sacrifices. So through that, we can just, in terms of pigs alone, we can see how many pigs um, Dilos needs. And it's it's massive. It cannot be, you know, supplied by the... Uh, local production. So you can envisage a constant traffic of pigs and goats and other sacrificial animals coming to the sanctuary from neighboring uh, from neighboring islands, but also as gifts with um, embassies and uh, pilgrimage groups that come from other islands and they bring their cow or their calf to sacrifice in the sanctuary. So this is one of the ways through which Delos does become a huge market. Because merchants know that if they go to dealers, there is a very good chance they will be able to sell their stock in terms of grain and all kinds of food. And because they go there, then it attracts other merchants and becomes kind of a, a network phenomenon. The bigger the network is, the more it becomes successful and attracts more people. And it therefore in the Hellenistic period and in the Roman period becomes one of the biggest markets in the Mediterranean. Merchants know they will sell the stuff on dealers for local consumption, but also for other people to buy. So it, it just attracts traffic. So did the people in, in Delos, they kind of, they made money out of this, didn't they? Of, of oh, yeah. all of this kind of tra- um, traffic, basically, as we would call it. Yeah, so you started with, you know, is it barren? And I, as, as I normally do, I go out and I go over to a ramp. Um, so they make a lot of money and the Delians become truly, truly very rich and not just that they also attract rich people from elsewhere so again in inscriptions we can see non-dillians that come and settle on Delos as I said you know there is some of the earliest Jewish community on the island we also have Phoenicians living there and we know that because we we can read the names and they're not Greek names but also because they establish their own cults so they have cults for you know Phoenician gods Egyptian gods is truly a mixing bowl of different religious um, religious dealers. And, you know, we, we can see also bankers operating their bankers' activities, and they're truly stinkingly rich. Archaeologically, we see that also because we've excavated the Delian town, which is mostly Hellenistic and late Roman, uh, and sorry, Hellenistic and Roman. And some of the villas there are truly spectacular. I mean, we're, you're talking about fantastic mosaics, um, wall paintings, spectacular design, um, you name it. It's truly, you know, like a nice place to live. And um, yeah, and that's why it has the population it has. Obviously, you know, those rich people also depend on uh, on slaves and other 
people that taking care of them that, that do not live in such uh, wonderful conditions. But Delos as a state, as a city, is very, very rich. So my my next question is, um, the day, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, grammatically wrong. There was a Dalian League. I mean, how does that play into the whole narrative of this? So the Dalian League is our name for a particular league that I'm going to describe right now. And we call it Dalian League because exactly the headquarters were on Delos. So this is back in the 5th century when I mentioned Athens controls most of the Aegean through the establishment of the Athenian Empire. How does that happen? The Greeks fight a huge war with the Persians, the so-called Persian Wars, um, to stop the Persian invasions. There are two Persian invasions, one in 490 BC and the second one, the bigger one, in 480 BC, where the Persians try to annex Greece um, into what is an already vast vast, uh, Persian Empire. And the Greeks managed to defeat them in 418, 479 in a series of battles. And those battles, the Persian Wars, become almost the foundation myth for Greeks themselves about how they, you know, how they united and, you know, defeated the Persians. It's it's one of the foundation stories for Greekness in classical antiquity. And I'll just open a small bracket here. And it's also one of the foundational stories for a modern Greek identity of how the ancient Greeks two and a half thousand years ago, you know, stopped uh, an Eastern invasion. And unfortunately, it's also one of the main narratives supporting white supremacist and alt-right narratives of Greek history, how the Greeks, whom the alt-right and the neo-Nazis see essentially as white Europeans, that's a huge... A huge misinterpretation of what's happening. But anyway, as you know, white Europeans defeated the Eastern Oriental barbarians. I mean, it's I'll stop the bracket there because that's a different story. But that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous on so many levels. But you know, I I won't even go. This is one of my famous runs, popular movies such as the Three Hundred. Do you want to know? We we had a podcast. It was uh, it was Roll. He took over from you for a little while at Birkbeck, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He he's wonderful. He taught uh, Greek history, and he's exactly someone who works on modern appropriations of Greek history. He's doing some fantastic work in relation to that. So the three hundred, the film and the the comic are exactly this Orientalist white supremacist view of uh, Greek history. But you know, modern audiences take it as uh, historically accurate uh, depictions. Anyway, so go back to the <laughs> link. You know, this is one of the rants. You know, don't watch three hundred or we watch love it. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
don't don't worry rants are allowed on this podcast we always go in one way or another but we actually did some really interesting stuff so what we actually did we just dispelled loads of myths and I just like randomly started throwing these things at him you know like all Spartans were these hot buff half naked men running around well, you know, you 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 are allowed to have your fantasies. I'm not, you know, I'm not against one. If you if it helps you, you know, imagine Leonidas as a hot buff with you know a six pack. It helps me. I mean, I, I don't have a problem with that as long as you know these are kind of fantasies and related to, in my case, middle aged uh, middle aged tendencies to sexuality. But that's you know that's a different issue. <laughs> so the Dillion League to go back to Dillos. Um, so the Greeks defeat the uh, Persians in 484-79, and then they make an alliance between themselves, so the Greeks who fought against the Persians, because frankly, they don't know at that point that the Persians are not coming back for another invasion. I mean, they invaded in 490, and they invaded again in 480. So they want to continue the war, they want to go and free also the Greeks who are under Persian rule in Asia Minor, in modern um, Western Turkey. So that becomes the Hellenic Alliance and the headquarters are on Delos because of the religious significance of that place. And that becomes in modern scholarship what we call the Delian League. So the Delian League is initially an alliance to continue the war against the Persians, but very soon, the first 10 or 15 years of his existence, of its existence, so by 460s at the latest, I would say, it is transformed into an imperial um mechanism of control by Athens, who is the leader of the league as the most important army and you know most wealthy city. So Athens controlling the Aegean cities that are part of the league into um, an empire. And that continues, so Delos is still the headquarters at, until 454 BCE, when the Athenians, for a number of reasons, decide that the headquarters, the treasury, which is on Delos and houses the the treasury, the common funds of the uh, alliance members, because every year those members have to pay a massive tribute to the league. So the Athenians decide they should take the treasury of, from Delos and bring it to Athens for face, safekeeping. So at that point, all kind of appearances that this is a Hellenic league based on Delos, which is neutral territory, completely disappear and becomes a true Athenian empire with the treasury under Athenian control in the Acropolis. The Athenians soon after that decide to build the Parthenon, so to build the temple to house the treasury. Um, Athens has control of the money. Athens has control of the army. If anyone decides to revolt, Athens goes with its entire might of massive fleet of triremes, the warship of ancient Greeks, and suppresses the revolt puts to death a male population, enslaves women and children, brings down their walls and so on. It's, it's a true and wonderful empire. And that takes place at exactly the same time as what we moderns admire about Athens, which is the development of radical democracy. So democ- radical democracy, the ability to access all levels of power, this irrespective of your uh, class position. So the poorest citizens can control everything, which is what the definition of radical democracy, as opposed to democracy, more, more moderate democracy. So what we admire, I admire, radical de- the development of, for the first time in human history, of a constitution where power rests in the hands of the poor, not the people, the poor, 
That particular constitution is linked with an imperial ideology of Athens being the ruler and suppressing brutally anyone who says otherwise. So it's a very, it's a very complicated situation for us modern historians, at least for me, to come to terms of how that is operating. I can admire Athenian democracy, but I can also see the issues related to imperialism, you know, and we're not going to even mention here the issues related to exclusion of women and of obviously, you know, existence of slaves and so on, horrific systems of exploitation taking place. But they look... So basically... No, it's, it's the, basically the Athenians just more or less take the treasury and say, thanks, cheers, that's, that's great, yeah. and take it to Athens and nobody can say anything, nobody can do anything... So they're basically, they're, they're a bunch of dicks, basically. Yeah, they are. Wait, but that's, you know, like, show me an empire that hasn't hasn't behaved in that way. And in, if you look at kind of historically imperial control and administration, Athens is not even that bad, I would say. It, it does, you know, for example, it does impose uh, democracies on allies when they revolt. I think, oh, okay, who revolted here? It must have been the aristocrats not liking Athens. We're going to impose a radical democracy and get rid of the issue of the revolt. So, you know, that's, well, you know, it's huge interference in the independence of a city-state, but on the other hand, radical democracy is certainly better than aristocracy in any case. So there are some positive things. But yes, they do take the treasury because they can. But that's a, they also, even though they take the treasury, they still control Delos in the sense that uh, Delos has a massive sanctuary, as I said. He has huge festivals that are foundational for um, the ideology of, Greekness. So, you know, if you are um, living in the Aegean Sea, you will go and worship the Delian gods. So Athens is not willing to give that up. And even though it takes the treasury from Delos, it still control. It still controls the sanctuary because the sanctuary is run by a board of officials who are Athenian. They're not Delian. So you have Delians living on Delos, having their own city, doing their own affairs. But the sanctuary, which is essentially the most important aspect of Delos, is controlled by Athenian officials. And that continues throughout the 5th and 4th century. The Athenian Empire collapses at the end of the 5th century. There is no Athenian Empire in the 4th century. Yet the Athenians still control Delos until 314, when essentially with the death of Alexander the Great and the advent of the Hellenistic kings, the Greek world is now so different that the Delians actually managed to gain their independence. And for the first time, you have Delian officials running the Delian affairs. It's a long and complicated history between Athens and Delos. I'm just finding it hard to comprehend saying, okay, here you go, Delos, you can have, uh, you can have your sanctuary, you can have you know, your, your town, you can have everything. But we're going to control where the money goes. Yeah. I mean, why wouldn't you? If you have the biggest military power, why would you allow them to have control over finances? I mean, this is like, you know, this is, this is empire. If you, if you have the ability, you will do it. You can say that, no, I'm not going to run. But you can say that about capitalism, right? So, you yeah. know, we live in a deadly pandemic. We should all be vaccinated as soon as possible to return to some sense of normality. Yet, you know, the companies that control the vaccine will not release its patent to save mankind because they might lose on the, the, you know, the income of the stockholders. You're thinking, 
Right. I mean, shouldn't we just all get vaccinated and just release a pump and, and, you know, the stockholders perhaps lose something because we're saving mankind? No, because it's capitalism. You can do it because you can. That's it. Empire, pretty similar. No, I agree. I yeah. So what happens to, um, what, so once it gets its independence, does it flourish or do things go yeah. downhill from there? It does. It certainly does. I mean, don't get me wrong, it flourishes before. It's still a massive market under Athenian control. It, 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 it does massive monumentalization. It's a really wonderful and, um, wonderful city, but it doesn't control the sanctuary. By the time the Delians get control of the sanctuary, they start building, uh, going through a massive building, um, massive investment for monumentalization. So they start building more and more sanctuaries, they repair the old, they bring, they build more marketplaces. It really expands, and we start seeing also the um, the city itself expands. So we have more houses and so on, and that continues until one six six BC, when it's the end of the Delian um, period of independence. Because at that point, the Delian, the Romans want to punish. Um, want to punish the Rhodians, let me get this wrong, the people of Rhodes for taking uh, taking sides with Mithridates, the king of the Black Sea, in the war against Rome, so they make Delos into a free port. At that point, Rhodes is one of the most important kind of ports in the Eastern Mediterranean, but the Romans want to punish Rhodes, so they make Delos a free port. That means you don't pay taxes when you sail on Delos. And that takes what is an already a massive market and shipping center for the Eastern Mediterranean and really makes it into the biggest market and shipping center for the Eastern Mediterranean because merchants now can sell to dealers without paying any tax. The Romans also expel the entire dealer population, 166, and impose Athenian clerus, Athenian settlers. So dealers out, Athenians in. If you're a small island, um, even if you are the birthplace of the god of Apollo and Artemis, you still are very much um, controlled by the bigger powers in play. Athens before, the Romans now. So in theory, when does Delos stop being inhabitable? Is that the right way of saying it? So Delos is really flourishes in the Roman period. So 166 uh, becomes a BC, becomes, as I said, a free port. And the first century BC, in the first century AD, it becomes truly massive, huge monumentalization, huge markets, more gods coming in, really, really, truly wealthy. And it kind of stops being that around the third or fourth century AD or CE. And it really gets abandoned. I don't want to get this wrong. About the fifth century CE, and it's that's not unique. I mean, it's most a lot of smaller Greek islands in late antiquity become um, more powerful, and you, you have a decline in population that is linked with larger historical trajectories in the Aegean, the resurface of piracy, of course, and so on. So, the end of Delos is really the end of classical antiquity as well as we know it. Uh, we have evidence for transformation of temples into uh, Christian basilicas. And it's quite a, a lot of work being done on that right now, which was a neglected aspect of the history. 
but really it, it gets abandoned. And by the time we have, uh, you know, the first kind of visitors of moderate is largely a, an island of ruins. Um, neighboring Mykonos goes and takes marble, of course, to reuse it in the building of Mykonos in the 17th and 18th century and so on. And it's only until the late 19th century when the French start excavating that uh, you get, we get, you know, Delos again enters the narratives about, you know, what's happening in Greek history was largely abandoned. But that's not, as I said, unique in the Greek world. That's what happens to ancient races. So let's talk about this excavation because um, some place you dream of going, isn't it? Yeah. So right now, Delos, of course, is a protected area because it's one of the most important archaeological sites of the modern Greek state. Um, you're allowed to visit by taking a boat either from neighboring Mykonos, which is about half an hour, or from Paros or Naxos, which is about, I think, one and a half, two hours. And it's a very controlled archaeological site. It's, it's spectacular. I mean, um, I've been I've been there many times, twenty or thirty times, and each time there is always something new I haven't seen before. It's truly a massive, massive site. It has a theater. It has a um, it has a city. It has many quarters uh, of the city, so you get to see the villas and the cisterns, and you walk into the ancient streets, and and all of that. It has a sanctuary. It's just. It's just um, unbelievable. Um, but uh, you have to take the boat back because the site shuts, I think, at uh, 7 p.m. in summertime. And then that's it. It's an empty place where only a few people stay over, uh, the guards and uh, some of the excavators who either uh, members of the French School of Athens who are in charge of excavation or Greek members of the archaeological uh, Ephoria, Ephoria being the basically the office in charge of archaeological excavation and restoration in Greece. And it's one of my dreams that, you know, everyone, I'll go to Delos, everyone will go with the evening boat and I'll get to stay on Delos, see the sunset on an empty island and experience the ruins by myself. That That is a dream. I, I've been invited, thankfully, um, but COVID then interfered and I couldn't go. So, I mean, you don't have many places in Greek world where you can walk in an ancient city and truly experience what it is to be there with no noise from modern from the modern world. Yeah. No other buildings inside. It's an empty island. Um, I mean, Delphi, it's also spectacular because it's up on the mountain. It has truly spectacular views. But I think Delos is unique. It's, it's the island as it was when it was abandoned in the 4th or 5th century, now with the excavations taking place. And I love the islands. I think it's, it's beautiful. The, the, the light that you get on the sunset on the Greek islands on the summer day, those pure oranges reflecting on the blue, I, you know, that, that for me is paradise. I know other people like to go mountains or look at lakes or forests, but not. I want to be on Delos and look at the sunset. That, that's my happy place. Don't don't judge me for what I'm going to say. I'm going to I'm going to bring up and always bring up this excavation site because it is probably one of the better preserved ones is Pompeii. And there is a spot where I, I agree with you on that. And um, it's just by Porto Nocera and nobody walks there ever. Like very rarely you'll see one or two people. And there is part of the hill where you've got the gate behind you. I sit there with a book really quietly and just watch the 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 the, the, the tombs. 
and it's it's so peaceful and so quiet that that's my happy place yeah i mean and as i said you know if you think of the amount of noise and also light pollution that exists in the modern world mm. those spaces where there is no noise and no light pollution i think they're just truly truly unique and you know the modern world and the modern greek state is not great on conservation i mean right now one of the issues in in the greek state is the fact that the government is trying to build uh, wind um, turbines on all our mountains to generate electricity. It's a very badly construed plan. Um, it's done not for green purposes or to save, you know, save the planet, but just because there is money right now in doing that and they don't care what they destroy. So one of the few areas that will not be destroyed by the curse that is called development, one of the worst things that a government can think of is like it's good for development um is so one of the spaces that cannot be destroyed is are our spaces because of their archaeological value so considering that the government's plan to build turbines on most greek islands right now therefore dis- disturbing and destroying what is a very fragile um balance of ecology uh, Delos will be one, I think, if that goes through, which will be truly horrendous, will be one of the few places where it will be preserved. It's antiquities and the love of the modern Greek state for classical antiquity. It doesn't have the same love for Byzantine antiquity or Roman antiquity. Uh, but for classical antiquity, because it's a foundation stone of modern Greek nationalist ideology, it has, does have that love. So Delos will be protected and will be one of the few places that will remain protected, I think. That's actually really sad that that's what the Greek government's doing. But it's good that Delos is being preserved. Yeah, but, you know, if everything else is destroyed, I don't see what the point of that is. But anyway. Christy, that was so insightful, absolutely. I love listening to you talk. So um, for definite, we have to get you back to come and talk about some religious aspects of the Greek world because we love your ranting keep ranting they're really awesome so thank you so much for joining us well thank you for letting me run i'll be happy to join you again amazing thank you so much when our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts so to this end we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Don't forget that we do exist on Patreon as History Hack and on Patreon as well, which is Podbean's own version. Uh, Alina and I have had massive fun doing this in 2020, uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living, etc. If we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload, then we will need your help. So uh, if you join... There's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.